Welcome everybody to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Church, downtown Atlanta. I'm Ed Bacon, the interim rector, and I am so thrilled to have this conversation today with two of my best friends and teachers, durable, trusted friends, nothing better in the world than that. And let me set up why we're together, why these particular people are with us, what we're going to talk about. So, our country is in trouble and needs significant, deep, cultural, hard, transformational work so that we don't keep coming back to the same old movie of getting upset when innocent black people are killed by police officers or other people, oftentimes and mostly white, and we have now uncovered this 400-year history of there being a racial caste system in America. Brian Stevenson, in a recent article in New York, said that protests are very important, and they're not going to do the cultural change that we need. We've got to do some hard, core, deep work. I have asked these two wonderful people, Jason Lyon and Tim Hartley, who have been together for 20 years, married officially for five, and are great, great friends and fathers of two wonderful sons, who have lived through the kind of deep cultural shift that we need about race. And so I am going to unpack that with them. Jason is an attorney by profession. He is the first outward LGBTQ partner of his 120-year-old law firm, an old established law firm in Pasadena, California. And we want to unpack what that's about. Tim is a realtor, a very successful realtor, who could stay with his real company forever, but has responded to a call from the Holy Spirit to become a priest, an Episcopal priest. And he has such a story to tell because he not only has received the call to the priesthood, he's received the call to make it a part of his life to talk across the divide. So we're going to explore all of this marvelous resourcefulness in these two guys. So without further ado, welcome Jason and Tim. We are so glad that you're with us at St. Luke's today. Thanks, Ed. It's so fun to see you and be with you. Thank you. And boy, that sounds like a lot to live up to. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. we've got a we've got a six year old making noise off to the side here. So yeah. uh, so it it so set your expectations now. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, it's an objective description of you all. I have never been given to hyperbole, and everybody who knows me at St. Luke's knows that that's the case. And we are in for a great trip with you. So, would you all just kind of set the stage about coming together, your relationship, what you've had to endure in terms of resistance from culture, maybe family, inside yourselves, and just tell that story if you don't mind. Go, go at it, please. So... I grew up Southern Baptist in uh, Kentucky and North Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> we're, you're my people. Um, and uh, we're both Episcopalian now. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a hard place for a gay kid to be. I, um, but I had worked through a lot of that by the time we met. So we met 20 years ago in line at a coffee shop. And uh, someone introduced us who happened to know us both. And we pretty much have been together ever since. Tim lived in Northern California at the time, and I was here in LA. And we were back and forth for a few months, and then he moved out. Um, the, you can jump in whenever, but I figure I'm in charge I'm listening. Of you tell us. Yeah. You're better at this. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, the first time we got married, 
uh, was when uh, Gavin Newsom, was the, who's now the governor of California, was the mayor of San Francisco, and uh, which is also a county, and ordered the, the county of San Francisco to start issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples in February of 2004. And uh, everyone thought that there would be a court order by the end of the day to, to put a stop to that nonsense. And when there wasn't, uh, a court, the court said that they would hear it in a hearing the next week. And so everybody came from all over the state and all over the country to seize that opportunity to get married. And I have chills now. And um, we But let waited. me just say about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did not want to go. I was, uh, <laughs> yeah. I had a sprinkler project that I was doing at our house and I had installed and That's dug true. trenches and, and his dad came out from Kentucky and my family's, you know, coastal, we're from San Francisco. And, uh, and so th that was a cultural shift that I, that I, um, I didn't marry into at the time, but, but, you know, when, when we became, when we uh, started dating. And so, and I loved his dad and his dad came out to help me with that project. And I said, no, I didn't want to drive up there. It seemed kind of crazy. It seemed clear what the state would be doing anyway, or at least, you know, would be stopping us from doing. And it was his dad who said, you should go. And this is a guy who, you know, chewed tobacco and was from Kentucky and just, uh, so, so that was a moment where I had preconceived ideas about what this relationship meant, and he was the one who pushed me to go. I still didn't go. And I was really mad. We, we actually were in a fight the whole drive to San Francisco. We didn't really speak till we drove into the city because I was so mad at him for not. I was like, this is our one chance. This may be our only opportunity in all of history to go do this. And you're like, I got to put in the sprinkler system? So we were mad at each other all the way up, barely talked, because we got up at like four in the morning to drive up there. And then as we drove into the city, he was all sweet and apologized and was excited to be there. And then we got in line at, at City Hall there and his family came in from because uh, from, they live near there. We got married there and then the state ended up invalidating those. But for us, that's really our wedding day. That was the day that it happened. Standing in groups of, I mean, there were, there were people getting married six feet away from us, and then another six feet after that, and all the way, all the way around San Francisco City Hall, they had like they had you know staff members who were there volunteering their time. Nobody was getting paid to be there performing these weddings. Um, tears, tears, tears yeah. everywhere you yeah. look. People, family. We we had people calling in when we did our ceremony who said there wasn't a dry eye in, uh, I think it was North Carolina and all these other places. But, le but let me just say one thing about my resistance to doing this, Ed, which, which I think speaks to the topic that, that you're addressing today. And that is that I, I never thought that we could get married. It never seemed like that would ever be possible for us. And so um, I, I just knew that the system was was against us, right? And that, that that wouldn't happen, that, that I would go up there and get my hopes up to have this taste of sort of normalcy or some validation of our relationship, only to then have it um, be taken away, which was what I was used to and, and an expectation that I had uh, for myself. Whereas Jason seemed to be coming at it from a, yes, we're do this. we we're we're uh this is this is something valid that that we can have access to i was from a different place of of resigning which i'm not necessarily proud of but that is kind of where i was coming from so and as we get further into our story i guess we'll talk about you know it's it, it's it's not a coincidence that i came out of a, a growing up in a church life and he did not and so the marriage as a sacrament was incredibly important to me and I was going to seize that opportunity. And then eventually, just to finish out the story, because I know we, we're, we have to get on, but the, we got married in 2008 when, Kat, when it was legalized in California for a short window of time before our electorate voted it down again, but that was our legal one. And then the Supreme Court decision in 2015. So we keep trying. We've done it a whole lot. But also, <laughs> let's, let's, let's bookend that nicely, because um, – when we had 20 when we were celebrating 20 years together last year yeah we came out and and in your church had our first ever uh, church, church wedding wedding 
by the so, like fourth or fifth time we've exchanged vows. The yeah. first time in a church with this man right here, and it was which uh, which was amazing. really meaningful to me as a sacrament and um, and beautiful. So thank you thank very you. much Ed, for for doing that and for the people who were there too. Yeah, you're very welcome. Many of those people love you uh, and uh, are watching and uh, sent their greetings and are very welcome back. Good deal. Good. Yeah, I'm glad, Jason, that you mentioned that you two come from a very, two di very different cultures. And um, I mean, you're white guys, and yeah. to come from the South and to come from the coast of California, to come from church and to come from no church, right, Tim? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You all have brought together a lot of different universes in your relationship and in your family. And I just wanted to note that because I think it, it'll probably come up as we continue to talk during these 45 minutes. Um, but, but let's get into, when did you all have a sense that you had a responsibility through your own living and the way you lived and the way you lived a public life that you had a responsibility to change the culture because all the historians note that this was not a given because the culture and the system and the narrative was saying that the people who are made in the image and likeness of God are white straight men and everything else, women, people of color, and certainly gay people are inferior to that mm -hmm. and it really there is a caste system now largely broken open around the sexual orientation can you talk about the journey of your kind of realizing that this was a big deal and um it, 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 that that it had your name on it So for me, I spent so much time coming to terms with being gay, because literally for 10 years, from the age of 12 until I was 22, which is when I came out and finally dealt with it, yeah. um, I prayed every day of my life to be made straight. And the... And my sense of the answer to that prayer was I was perfect, just like I was. So, wow. so, but it took, I mean, it took, you know, a decade to get there. And then, and then, and then the rest of my life since then to believe it, right? <laughs> like I, that's an ongoing struggle to this day. But, um, but out of that, I felt a real sense of mission to stand up for people. And I already had a, you know, a deep sense of social justice just in myself. So, um, so it became more personal. Jason, that was a very powerful statement. I wrote it down. This business of having a mission to stand up for people. Yeah. And you were doing that with your own body, story, and relationships. Can you just, I've got chill bumps. I, can you kind of dwell there and unpack that a little bit? That's so important. Yes, so, I mean, this is part of goes to my kind of spiritual calling in the world, right? But it also, from a, from a social change perspective, I think it, what we know now, intuitively I was getting at the idea that proximity matters, right? So that just like letting people see my humanity and who I am and all of me, it makes change in the world. And I think even before we had social science research to, to show that, somehow I knew that was true, that it was just critical to tell the truth about who I am. Now, I will say there's a kind of, there's a hard flip side to this that is kind of, that's an expression of internalized homophobia. That is, sometimes I mix that up with needing to be uh, the, the, best, the best gay in the world you know, the, like a poster child for the best marriage and the best dad and the best, and none of that's about what it's about, right? It's really about being as authentic as I can in who I am. So sometimes those are a little hard to pick apart. Yeah. 
Oh man, you got my breath. Um, that that's breathtaking. Uh, when you start talking about being the most authentic person you can be, rather than this posed kind of bemasked person, um, I just I just want to breathe that in because I think that's part of the change that's ahead of us. All of us, wherever we are on the political spectrum, and we're going to get to that in a minute when we talk with Tim about talking across the divide. Authenticity is crucial. I have a I have this very close African-American friend who said, yes, it's important for white people to check in with black people, but not as voyeurs. It's got to be authentic uh-huh. in terms of wanting to know how we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that authentic, your question earlier about what was the reason or what was the moment where, um, where we noticed a shift or, or wanting to, to kind of be an agent of, of social change it was a heavy one. And I'm not sure that, that, that mine evolved that way, that mine was more about a life or death. You know, I was, I was, uh, wanted to die as someone in the closet and um, and tried. And eventually I decided this was a, about, okay, either I can, I can die or be successful at one of these suicide attempts, or I can try living this kind of authentic life. I don't know that that's the language that I would have used, but that's when I then came out. And part of that coming out process for me was being out in every place that, that I was. Yeah. Uh, um, and and leading a life that I thought I would never be able to lead, and that that translated into you know being asked to do some some talks to college classes that I was involved with. Uh, to even after we met, I I was a management consultant and traveled for a living, and I had a job in in Raleigh, North Carolina. We were all out. All the guys were out, right? And they uh, they all talked about going out to, I think it was strip clubs or something. And they said, why can't, won't your wife let you come out? And I said, oh, no, I'm not. I've got a, I've got a husband. And that's why uh, that, that within weeks we got rings to put on. We couldn't get married. I didn't even think that was an option. But I did think it was important to have have rings on so that those kind of discussions in those moments could mm-hmm. be could be on par with what they were talking about, right? They were talking about wives, although they weren't as considered as I might have considered Jason. Yeah. But it was an interesting that, that that moment really sticks out for me as being something um, that was important to to do. Tim, stay with that. So, yeah. what was the challenge? What were you being challenged to? be or to change or to shift in that moment when you said no 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 that well i think for me what that was about was the um the validity of the relationship that i had uh not necessarily being um known or or known acknowledged or even validated as, as being on par or equal uh, with these these other people that I was interacting with. Uh, so, so that's what that was about. I don't know that putting a ring on my finger as an outward display of the relationship that I was in uh, necessarily addressed that, but in some small way, it seemed to for me. Yeah. And am I reading into it to ask you that there was an epiphany about how you had a responsibility to validate yourself so that they could understand that there was just no ambivalence in your mind about that this is you. Yes, yes, and, and it, it ties into what Jason was saying about that that needing to be also the best example of, you know, a gay person that they knew, you know. So yes, not only did I have someone at home, but it was the best relationship, and it was, you know, everything um, 
that that relationship they're supposed to be. So there was some of that yeah. that pressure as well too. Um, so even while we have the outward urge to say there's no ambivalence, the the fact is there really is, right? And that's part of the way we grow out of that ambivalence is by giving voice to to our best selves, right? To our most hopeful selves, to our you know, yeah. to want to be <laughs> in a kind of fake it till you make it way. You know, but that but that's an interesting thing because that authenticity uh, evolves, it grows, yeah. and so I still remember even even when not sure maybe even when our kids were as as early as our oldest is fifteen years old, um, can remember moments of saying my husband or you know the, using that kind of language that seemed foreign to me. Now I use that language without without much of a Thinking, second thought. Yeah, right. but, but that for me is is an evolution, a growth of that authenticity, um, a maturity, a maturing of that authenticity, mm -hmm. um, at, at least in that respect. And I'm sure I've got a lot of other places for that to grow. Right. So Jason, you mentioned earlier internalized homophobia. I mean, there is this reality of internalized oppression no matter what target group anybody is in, yeah, there is, it seems to me, uh, and I'll connect it with the race issue in just a second, it seems to me that there is a journey where all of us have to say, no, 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 you've got me wrong. I am this. I stand for this value. Whatever the value of combating oppression is, um, I think there's this inner work that absolutely every human being has to do about, no, 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 your assumptions that I'm going along with the culture are wrong. I'm standing against the culture where the culture is oppressive. Right. And in fact, that has been an easier thing for me to say around issues of race ah. and around economic injustice than around homophobia, right? Okay. This is Un unpack that I mean, while we're there. Well, you know, because we, it's a part of growing up in the South. You're just like, race is so, you're just steeped in it. You know what I mean? And you, and you, the truth is you, somewhere inside your side, you either pick your side or it gets picked for you. And I don't know which, but I, from an early age, I understood racism was a problem before I could have articulated that to you before I could have I, I looked around and I remember a Baptist sermon when I was a little kid about the mark of Cain being race and like like I was maybe five right and something in me was like that is crazy talk before I could have articulated it it just was in me right so um but that I didn't, so that I didn't buy into from the beginning. I did buy into a lot of those messages about how I was fundamentally broken because I'm gay yep. for a long time, for a long time. And in some ways, I think I, you know, that's a lifelong journey, truly. Yeah. Like checking that, my own internalized oppression. So I'm aware that you've had these very important points where you've chosen the road less traveled but most needed in America, the road of anti-oppression, anti-racism, anti-homophobia, and just because you went to San Francisco and did that, and then you did the next thing, and then, and then, and then, it's still a journey. Yes. Because, I mean, to fast forward a lot, and if you need to bring us back to inter intervening moments, but I'm, I'm just stunned at what you've done at Han and Han. I mean, if you can just tell us a little bit, I mean, people are going to be able to identify, but you have to tell us a little bit about what Han and Han Law Firm is and what is it like to be a partner there openly LGBTQ and to call that system, that institution into claiming a minority you'll have to tell us what it is yeah. so what's that, what's that journey? 
So ju just to frame Pasadena, Pasadena is this funny, it's not like the rest of California. It's this old fashioned kind of old town with a kind of landed gentry part and a poorer part and we and all this tension in between. And, you know, it's still there's still like a society newspaper here. So there are all those things at play. And I, I decided to go to work. I left a, a big law firm because I wanted to be kind of closer and have a simpler life and be around the kids more. Um, and, and so I went to this firm here called Han and Han that is 120 years old um, and is in many ways regarded as sort of the symbol, one of the symbols of old Pasadena, right? It's very like uptight and stodgy and proud to be your grandfather's law firm and all that stuff. And shortly after I got there, I was counting up the partners and realized that there are more women than men partners and that a majority of those women are women of color. And I was like, just so you guys, I remember I said to one of the partners, I was like, do you know that there are more women than men? And she said to me, Shh. <laughs> and then we, so we, I ended up spearheading a campaign to get us certified as a, as a women and minority owned business enterprise which, you know, the old white dudes are hilarious about because they're basically on board, but still kind of think it's crazy that that's appealing to anyone or a thing. Um, and, you know, I, um, I'm com that in that role, I'm really comfortable bridging the divide and being a little bit, I mean, you know, I like to be an agent of change and an instigator. I was a Ed Blast Junior Warden at All Saints and um, I like to nudge systems. So it, uh, and so I've been doing that, you know, I'm doing a lot of work there to kind of modernize how we think and how we talk about things and, um, and I'm seeing the fruit of it. So it's nice. It's really, it's nice. And in, truly on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I mean, I'm aware that I'm the only LGBTQ person there, at least out, but probably the only one there. Um, but it, you know, we're in a place now where I think I'm comfortable being there, and I may I think I help make other people comfortable. But I think it's it is we really are we have turned the corner. I hope in this culture on that particular issue. I think, and you know, people come to me and say like, "What's the right word for the for your for Tim?" And I'm like, "Husband, we're married." <laughs> Husband is there, but thank you for asking. I mean, it's cool that they ask, right? But see, that's the interesting thing is the 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 asking about that mm -hmm. is I think an important point that, that you alluded to earlier, I don't remember where it was Ed, but uh, the ability to be honest with each other about about where we are, right? Mm -hmm. I, I always appreciate when someone says, hey, I just wanna be sensitive and, and I don't know what to call Jason. What, how, is it appropriate for me to ask how your kids are part of your family? And all of those things are are questions that that other people aren't asking, but making assumptions about or, yeah. or how to navigate. And um, I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot about how I interact also. Um, you know, especially in this moment that we're talking about, and what what are my what are my vulnerabilities, and where do I feel sensitive, and uh, and how do I navigate that? Yeah. And the flip side of this being, it's not every oppressed person's job to teach you <laughs> how to talk about these things. And I happen to be totally comfortable with it, but you, but you gotta be willing to put yourself out there and ask the question and have someone say to you, not my job, yep. Yep. <laughs> ask somebody else. So, I mean, that's part of it, right? So in my thinking, um, you're bringing up the issue of the role of allies. Yes. So it is an act of being an ally to go up to someone and say, can you tell me what the preferred terminology is? Or will you help me get out of my little box? Uh, do you have anything you need to say at this point? Again, in the service of cultural change, of the role of allies, were there allies along your journey that were particularly helpful or not? Um, not the answer does not have to be yes on this. I, I'm j I just I hadn't even thought about it when I was thinking about our conversation. But I do know 
that there is a role in our racial crisis right now for healthy, non-egotistical white allies who are not doing it for themselves, but are doing it to change the story. It's, yeah. Um, I was trying to think if they were allies before I was, you know, when I was a kid. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know anyone who was saying positive stuff about LGBT people when I was a kid at all. Got it. Um, certainly as an adult, much of my coming to a place of self-acceptance had to do with as we talked about or you talked about and and some of what I have come to appreciate some of the sacraments and some of the the rituals that we do as as a religious body and one of them is a, a breaking of bread right we will do we did that just probably before this forum right that happened in a symbolic way because we're That's doing right and so I wanted to take that piece of it of breaking bread and 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 doing that uh purposely seeking out people who would want to uh, engage with me uh, in, in a lunch and a conversation with no preconceived agenda and, um, and just a couple ground rules about, you know, that, that we weren't trying to convince each other, that we were both curious and wanted to engage conversation. And so I set about doing that and I asked, I asked people on, on social media for those contacts and um, and that's how that happened. So I started setting up these lunches and having those those lunches with people. And it has been um, it has been it has been an interesting endeavor for me, um, and, and has really opened up things for me. Um, are you are you from? Oh, you're not frozen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so long. I thought you were deep in thought. He was listening to you. <laughs> I'm I'm having a Gloria shack. That's what listening looks like. Yeah, that is what the listening looks like. I'm sorry I looked stern. Up, was up, oh. <laughs> What'd you say, Jason? I said you can go catch his TED Talk on at the TED Talk website. website. We're actually, actually going to run the um, the link for your okay. TED Talk at the end of this uh, interview. And can I talk just briefly about how how else that that came please, about? Please. So, so I talked about. I talked about the breaking of bread, but I was doing hospice volunteer, volunteering, and I had this hospice patient whom uh, I really enjoyed chatting with and getting to know. And after a while, in in our just kind of superficial but but still loving, you know, interaction and relationship that we'd have with each other, she made a comment about uh, before that 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 election happened. Um, 2016. Yeah, kind of a disparaging comment about about um, Hillary Clinton, and um, and it shocked me because I realized, oh my gosh, I we haven't had this discussion, but yet I have had this bond and have forged this relationship with this woman that I appreciate and love, only to then find out that she had this political perspective, and what was what I was embarrassed. To admit, but was certainly true, was that had I known that about her beforehand, you know, I might not have have taken that that hospice volunteer, which 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 kind of breaks my heart. And as a side note, that woman ended up living. She was mm -hmm. taken off hospice and lived for a very long time. And just two weeks ago, week I've been in touch time. with her family. We can't see her during COVID, and she just she just died um, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I was in touch. So tell me, are you saying that it was in that relationship that this idea, and we've talked about mission before in this conversation, that this mission was born, or would had it been born before this relationship with this lady who was in hospice care? I would say that interaction that I had and, and that relationship is what helped this idea to come uh, to be fully formed. Yeah. Because what I realized was in, in looking at social media and the way that we interact today, we self-select, right? We don't, we don't have, we might have childhood friends that we love who are of a different political persuasion than us. But that's because we were, we grew up as kids and, and had this, this different type of relationship. But it's not often that we make 
and forge relationships now with people that have differing uh, political perspectives. And let me also say that that is that that there are some some valid reasons for that, right? That there are um, th that there are political perspectives that that are a jeopardy to our family mm -hmm. and some and so uh, so I don't mean to suggest that you know all polar opposite uh, political viewpoints can actually come together and bond on another level. I'm not suggesting that at all, but I am saying that that for me there were ways that um, that I didn't that I could navigate that without making blanket assumptions ahead of time. Yeah. But Charles Eisenstein says we do live in a polarization trap in the United States mm -hmm. and that it may be that our brains are polarized brains which tells us that we need to make a new stride in evolution and that we can through neuroplasticity change the way we think and is it reductionistic Tim too reductionistic to say that this interpersonal relationship you had with this lady outflanked any polarization um, propensities you had and thank God the interpersonal stuff came in and said okay Tim you have this calling now Wow, that's beautiful. Well, this is what I think happens in, in, in evolution, right? We have these things that pop up and then eventually we gravitate towards them. And this is, this is who you introduced me to, Ilya Delios, uh, right? You know, this is this, this idea that, that this evolution of us is, I think, what's the line in there that, that love is the spearhead of, of evolution? Yes. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it, it, it may sound reductionist, but I think it is, it, I believe that that is true. That well, let's claim, let's claim that it's profound and multi-complex and not reductionistic, okay? Okay, yes, so, that's what, <laughs> what you're bringing to my mind in my own story that is resonant with what you've just said was I told God that I would go anywhere in ministry as long as it, was, as it was not Mississippi. <laughs> because Mississippi... I've never heard you say that. <laughs> was always the 50th in... Yeah. In, right? And I was a white liberal child of Georgia, the state of Dr. King. Mm -hmm. And so, no God, I'll go anywhere but Mississippi. Where did I get called to go? to be the dean of the cathedral in Jackson, Mississippi. And the greatest grace that came to me that was so transformative out of that was there were all of these people I met who were great people on the interpersonal level and who also, not all of them, but significant numbers of people who also harbored racist and homophobic commitments. I mean, I'm talking ideological commitments. And so I had to understand, okay, how do you stay in an interpersonal relationship that's love-based and also speak the truth in love that disagrees? What was the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, you may not know this, but I've written a book. And <laughs> I'm sorry, old joke. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but the answer is love. I mean, the answer is love over and over and over again to love the person who really drives you batty. And that's the person you're called to love enough, uh, the most. Let me, let me just piggyback on that a little bit and, and kind of jump back to, to something that this was my family wasn't from the South. And so I, I married into this family. And and I do remember one of Jason's family members um, saying that, um, that because of knowing us, that she has changed her perspective on God, that we were, that, that God made us this way. This was five years after our son was born, I think. And, um, and that was so moving to me. But that, but that was a that was a a result of interpersonal relationships, right? It was a result of 
of her seeing us. Now, I, I, I'm not sure that she has evolved that way on other matters of race or other issues, but. It's so important with that particular relationship to say though that when I came out, she wrote me, this is my, my, my aunt, my mom's sister, who helped raise me. I mean, I was, we were close, close. And she wrote me a letter to tell me that uh, how heartbroken and horrified she was that I would have to go to hell because I was gay. And we, I have those letters still, someday I'll publish them somewhere. We went back and forth and I didn't, I think it's critical to say I didn't give up. Although I did keep checking in with myself to say like, is this too toxic to, Yeah. Stay in, because you have to. At some point, if it's going to cost my spirit, then then it's a then I think for me that's the line where I say like I've got to step back. But it didn't get there, and I think you know uh, there's been huge evolution around that. Yeah. And the same thing with my mom. I think you know my mom originally said to me, "Can't you just not talk about this to me?" And I was like, "No, it's like this is I can't." T tell you about my week and not tell you if I went on a date with someone or you know and then my mom came back a few years later my mom became a big LGBT rights activist and came back and said I just want you to know I'm a better person because I have a gay son and I was like oh so wow. you know I'm a better person along the way when I thought I gotta bail on that relationship yeah so you know I'm glad I keep showing up for most of these <laughs> I friend her on social media I think yeah, you got. It's got to be really egregious for me to like cut you off on social media. Yeah. I might stop following your feed, but well, let me let me say as a result of of that that those lunches that I that I've been having, um, I also did that. I, I I started afresh. I also engaged with people online in a social way that were um, of different political persuasions than than I come from, and. Um, and I'm able to do that in a way that isn't completely charged. But I, I do yeah. feel like again saying um, that it is that that there are there's a nuance to that, right? And um, that well, like you were saying that that you have to really self-check, right, about what uh, what's healthy and and yeah. not healthy. Because I'm certainly engaging people that uh, that think like your aunt did think but still currently do um and and so so there is a line there and there's a there's a barometer i have to keep checking myself against uh, well, I, i've got a follow-up question but before i go there tim and the question is going to be what do you say to yourself you know when it's just tough to do this over and over and over again before i pose that question to you i do want to file how important it is for us to take a break from what might make us feel toxic. Yeah. So our friend, our mutual friend, Zelda Kennedy, with whom I was extremely intimate, African-American priest, told me, Ed, I love you so much, but sometimes I have to take a break from white people including you because yeah. you get on my last black nerve and I don't want to have some I don't want to I've just got to have a break from some white folks and I think all of us have to fast from what makes us toxic mm -hmm. and get fortified and then go back into it so here's the question Tim I mean if y'all want to come back to Zelda that's fine with me but the, the question to you Tim is surely there have been times where you have said, this is too much work, it's taking too much from me, it's too much toxin in my body, and yet you say, no, I'm gonna keep having lunches with people with whom I disagree. This goes to what I said earlier about feeling like I it is a practice of mine that I do not do perfectly. Ah. And and in those moments, Ed, I, I, I'll admit, sometimes I feel like I'm done doing it, you know? Um, for me, it is a practice of, of resetting that involves some meditation and, and other practices, as well as a spiritual practice that I have now that, uh, that, help, to, that help to recharge and reset. 
Well, I don't even know if it's a recharge and reset, but it certainly helps to remove some of the barriers that uh, that can that can make it difficult for me to continually engage. Yeah. And it's not like in, for, in terms of the struggle for LGBT rights, we can't step that far back from it. You know what I mean? We're like two dads with two kids and it's, it, it's not possible for us to be invisible. I sometimes decide I don't want to take on every conversation I could have to, yeah. <laughs> to bring somebody along with love. Yeah. But, um, but uh, you know, I think at this point we're both pretty good at pacing ourselves around that issue. It's funny though, recently I've been really experiencing a lot of despair around race and find it, it's usually at this moment, kind of moments like this in history, I'm excited and invigorated. And I, I, have, I have found with this moment in history, I've been feeling like, oh, I, and, and you know, I'm not even a person of color, right? So, but I, I think like we've had this conversation so many times and I know what happens. We get fired up, we have the protests and then we do what we did before. And I'm hoping and feeling something feel, is starting to feel a little different. But I have, I have had my own level of doubt about that in this particular moment in history. I it does feel different. The I moment feels different. And it is no longer acceptable to have your viscera satisfied by complaining as a white liberal and then go back into sleepwalking. And yes. then waking back yeah. up yeah. and another black person gets killed by a white police officer or by some vigilante group you know like in Brunswick, Georgia right. and I, I pray that I don't relax on this one this time around I want a different storyline or as my colleague Horace Griffin said I'm ready for a new movie I'm tired of this one and it's the same old damn horrendous, violent, lethal movie. Let's get a different story. Right. But I think that also involves, at least for me, and I would hope for others, that uh, that that there are things that we outward things that we can do, but also a lot of inward work that that we need to take on and be mm -hmm. honest with. And especially, you know, as as you know, with enjoying some of the privilege of being white right is is uh is 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 incumbent upon us to to do that work yeah uh, that that and this is where i start to despair that i think people aren't aware of that needs to happen yeah um let me say that was a struggle for me though coming up against my own privilege having grown up gay in the south i did not for a long time identify with having privilege, even though I'm a, a, I'm a white guy of some means with an education and all the ways in which I'm privileged. I did not, I was thinking about it in a kind of, in, in, too, in too binary, a black and white, zero sum kind of way, like I'm either privileged or I'm not. And the truth is we have all these, you know, this weird complex hierarchy in America. And I have the places where I have some privilege and I have the places where I have a little bit less. and. We all have to check that, all of us. And it, it was hard for me to get my head around that one for a, a long time, I think. Thanks for well, raising that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I had an opportunity to, uh, to talk about those lunches at, at a high school. And there was an African-American student who challenged me on that. Like, well, well it is, uh, your ability to set up and have these lunches a result of a white pri of, pri of a privilege that you enjoy um, and it got me thinking a lot about that um, I don't know the answer to that I think I think the what what's missing in that component is the fact that I am that I'm also gay mm -hmm. you know and live with a husband and these people that I'm meeting are you know are um, hostile to that um, and so you know, so, so there was that component in there. But I thought it was still a fair question. I thought it was a fair question to think about. Um, so anyway, that ties into yeah. stuff. Privilege and advantage is always a fair question. And those of us who swim in privilege and advantage really need to wake up to understand that it is something that is challengeable 
and people have the right to challenge us yeah. about it. Well, we've yeah. got to wrap it up, but I do want to thank you, Tim, for also bringing in the spiritual practice stuff, because that whole notion you used it as recharging and resetting is absolutely crucial, I find, to go back into the arena every day because the job in my mind of re-narrating Christianity, the job of a Christian is to do away with oppression. And it is to live into what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the reign of God, however you call it, how, how, how life looks when love has its way is what the presiding bishop says. That's our place. And it is fraught with crisis and tension, and that's our exhilarating call yeah. and mission. And you started with mission, Jason, thank you. And Tim, you finished with the spiritual disciplines. And inside that is all this daily work that's really grace-filled, particularly when we're in community with one another. Yes, yeah. This has been a moment of great community for me to love y'all and be with you and feel you and learn from you. Um, on behalf of the people of St. Luke's, thank you for giving us this time. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank nice seeing you. So good to be with you. I miss it. to be with y'all. Thank you very much. And thanks everyone. Please look at the next slide. It has a link to the TED Talk that Tim Hartley did about talking across the divide. Talking across the divide is part of our job right now in the middle of this crisis. And thank you all. See you next Sunday.